Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you. Just as a recap of last week, there has been a lot of interest for this exclusive Gniza tour that will be run by yourself to see the um, Cairo Gniza. Um, so we've received a lot of emails. However, we did not state a date or time. Um, but now we could confirm that it will be taking place on Wednesday, the 27th of July, which will be in the three weeks. The timing is yet to be confirmed by the Gniza. So I guess we're going to meet outside the library. Yeah, nearer the time we'll know whether it's morning or afternoon visits, probably in about a week from now. Right. So you said that there'll be 20 spots and we've had well over 20 emails, but it's still worth it to send in a request because there might be some cancellations because of the dates. Also, I was So there might be a possibility. We, we have to see how the library works. Uh, but yeah, def- people should definitely send in applications. Email through and then we yep. will tell you if you made it. And then due to popular demand, there might be a second tour. Yes, there could even be a second on the same day. Okay, fantastic. So just to remind everyone, it's podcasts with an S at the end at jle.org.uk. Please do send in your application as soon as possible. So now we're going to start a new two-part series. You mysteriously build it as a year in history. You wouldn't give any more information. You love keeping your <laughs> listeners in the dark. But now that we're recording, would you, would you care to shed some light? Yes, the year is 1772, exactly 250 years ago, because... In the late 1700s, a movement in the Jewish world, which would go on to accumulate hundreds of thousands of followers, would undergo the most difficult year of its history. The movement is Hasidus, the year, as I mentioned, 1772, and the events were threefold. Firstly, the excommunication of Hasidus in the early part of that year. Secondly, the breakup of Poland in mid-1772, in which uh, three empires would divide the country. And thirdly, was the passing of the Meserich Magid at the end of that year. And the movement would splinter into separate dynasties and groupings. And most people link that outcome to these three events. But most people have it wrong. And much of the reason for the confusion is because most people view Hasidus from the perspective of seeing it as it is nowadays, which in many ways is almost the exact opposite of what it was 250 years ago. So you're going to have to explain this. So I'll give you an example. Many people have some idea of why Hasidus started, but they often misunderstand the methods of how Hasidus was spread through Europe and by whom? As a central example, Hasidus today is at the core of establishment Haredi Judaism. You know, it's very visible on the streets. It is the most conservative wing of orthodoxy in terms of uh, dress, language. They've changed far less 
in the past century than other groups within Haredi Judaism. They are almost averse to sweeping change, but, and this is a very big but, Hasidus started for one reason only, in order to create absolute and radical change within orthodoxy, within the rabbinate, uh, within Jewish ideology almost. In other words, it started as a movement which challenged the existing leadership of Torah Judaism to drastically change the way it related to the masses of Jewry. And um, they were successful because they were revolutionaries who wanted to generate change. And in fact, that's why they were excommunicated. You know, they weren't put in harem as a misunderstanding. Uh, Hasidus, therefore, was very different in the 1700s to the movement it is today. And it's true that by the early 1800s, it was no longer revolutionary. Uh, in fact, by the mid-1800s, some of it was indistinguishable from other branches of orthodoxy. And therefore, you find certain leaders being claimed by all sides as being one of theirs, so to speak. You know, Hassam Sefer as an example. So you're saying that Hasidus was revolutionary, but you started by speaking about 1772 in particular. What, what happened then that was so... Okay, so the, the period we will look at from 1772 to probably about 1800 um, sees Hasidus as a frontal attack on established Judaism, where there were counterattacks, and it lasted for that entire generation. But 1772 in particular was a watershed year. In February, there's the first real outbreak of hostilities between the Misnagdim and the Hasidim in Vilna, which resulted in a cherem signed by 12 rabbis, including the Vilna Gon. In the summer, White Russia, Belarus, in other words, was annexed to the Russian Empire, and Galicia, which is southern Poland, was taken by Austria, and that meant that parts of the Jewish community, of the Hasidic community, which until then had been part of a single political entity, now find themselves separated, and it remains that way until 1918 as a breakup. And at the very end of the year, the foremost leader of Hasidus, um, the uh, Magid of Mezrich, Rabdov Bear, who had... Wasn't that the Baal Shem Tov? Well, he had taken over from the Baal Shem Tov, who died in 1760. And when he dies in 1772, he does not leave an heir to take charge of the movement. Now, dealing with a new movement, it was, you know, about 30 years old... If they have these three setbacks in a 12-month period of time, you don't really expect a recovery. If the establishment, the uh, orthodox establishment, is out to close you down, and that establishment runs most of the leadership positions, then you will just fade away. But, historically speaking, this year would prove the triumph of Hasidus and the growth of Hasidus. It triples in numbers over the next couple of decades, which is odd. What actually happened? That's what I'd like to deal with. Although, I will say that today's session may test the loyalty of some of our listeners, 
because it may challenge who they believe was wrong and right in this. Um, but let's begin anyway with an introduction to the history of Hasidus, which will lay the groundwork. And obviously, we could do a series uh, on the 200 years of its existence, uh, perhaps later in the year, you know, the different flavors, the different countries, the successes, battles, the, the ideologies, differences, uh, and even how it was transported after the Holocaust, which is a very real change that, that occurs. Right. So this one's about the actual origins, how things started. Yes. Uh, to understand what and why. So in the 1730s, initially through the efforts of Rabbi Sorol Baal Shem Tov, the Besht as he is often referred to, in the Ukraine and somewhat in Lithuania, there's a new movement that starts. Now, we've mentioned in previous podcasts that most of Western Europe had no Jews in by 1500, and Eastern Europe's Jews enjoy a hundred years, a century of relative peace. And then there are the the pogroms of 1648-49, invasions, plague, and also, as we've mentioned in dealing with Poland, trade shifts from within the European mainland to the newly discovered territories, the Americas. And all this brings large segments of Eastern European Jewry into poverty. Now, these physical difficulties are compounded by spiritual ones in the wake of the destructive activities of the false Messiah Shabtai Tzvi, uh, which, uh, when you combine the two, leaves many Jews in Eastern Europe frail, uh, almost depressed. And Jewish scholarship had only the very few studying in yeshivas. And this means that commitment and meaning in Jewish religious life went downhill over a number of decades. And it isn't uh, just, you know, sort of an exaggerated crisis. The average Jew was losing any type of connection, whether intellectually or spiritually, with God. And of course, it's important to bear in mind that most of them had no Jewish learning beyond the age of, I don't know, 13. This is true anywhere in the Jewish world. So these Jews are poor, unlearned, battered by anti-Semitism. It's not a pretty picture. And many Jews are living in small villages remote from proper Kehillus. You know, the, the days when Jews would be, I don't know, a third or perhaps 50% of a town, Warsaw, Brisk, Lvov, that's the mid-1800s, that's not now. So, in this period of time, we hear st stories about, you know, Jewish innkeepers, which, you know, Hasidic story doesn't have an innkeeper in it. Yeah. Because innkeeping was a very Jewish trade. It's not just a Hasidic Meiser. There's an academic work written. Uh, which if you have a spare 70 euro you can purchase. It's called Jews, Liquor and Life in the Kingdom of Poland. And the author estimates that at one time over 80% of the taverns were in Jewish hands. But if Jews are running inns, they are in the middle of nowhere. 
no shawl, no community, no connection. So you have a lot of stories about, you know, Moishala, the innkeeper, hiring a malamud, a teacher for his child, because without that, the child grows up with nothing. You're surrounded by drunken Ukrainian peasants. It, it doesn't get less Jewish than that. So the Baal Shem Tov set about teaching these people, emphasizing the idea of bringing Hashem into a person's life, that even when life is pretty restricted, it's possible. So, you know, did he envision a movement when he started out? Maybe, but he definitely wanted to make inroads, no pun intended. <laughs> His movement is about redemption, but personal redemption, not the redemption of a nation. There's a saying attributed to him based on Lachodoidi, Korva el nafshi ka'ola, bring my soul to redemption, my soul, not our souls. So he taught the principles and importance of prayer, of simcha. He taught that even the deeds of the simplest Jew, if performed sincerely, were equal to those of great scholars. Hasidic thinking stresses the importance of dveikus, of clinging to Hashem, feeling Hashem's presence in all aspects of a person's life. Uh, I guess if you want to put it in one word, Hasidus taught faith, or uh, maybe in three words, uh, you've got uh, faith, uh, meaning, and hope. And this message caught on rapidly amongst the simple Jews in particular, very rapidly. Thousands upon thousands of Jews were drawn to the Hasidic movement. Why are we defining it as a movement? He taught the importance of faith and tefillah. Why would that be a movement? Surely it's just like a Musa Sefer. Okay, so we're still in the 21st century. That, that's the problem. It, to understand how new this was, uh, given that any Jewish book you would pick up today, Litvish, Hasidish, Svardi, in fact, even if it was secular, but written for Jews, it would emphasize these ideas that I've just mentioned. And you could be forgiven for thinking, what's the big deal? You know, where's the revolution I was promised? So this is the scandalous part. It was a revivalist movement, meaning that the narrow intellectualism of the Torah world had no connection to these Jews. They moved away from that. And that meant that Hasidus, in its message, made no attempt to bring the masses to Torah study. So they are dealing with 95% of the Jews in Eastern Europe. They make no attempt to tell them to study Torah. Why? Because it couldn't be done. You know, why don't you come to a share? Because these people know nothing textually, don't own any books, had no one to teach them, live in the middle of nowhere, or perhaps they were peddlers on the road all year round from town to town. There was no way to make the learning of Torah possible and therefore something which should be a goal at all. So they focused on other principles, prayer, simcha as mentioned. Um, and it's, you know, it's the service of the heart rather than the mind. The, uh, you know, the good in every Jew. Tefillah makes you important in God's eyes, as important as the rabbi. And prayers are answered because of their intensity. Uh, you know, you see that 
ignorant shepherd in the fields who can't even read Hebrew, all he knows is the, the letters of the Aleph base, well, he'll say them with all his heart, and he will rescind the decree in heaven. Yeah, familiar story. <laughs> so you need to plug this story into history, not just read them in the kids' page of a newspaper. What was keeping them in the fold if they had nothing, they had no text, and they had no way of really practicing? They did. The performance of mitzvahs was done because everybody around you kept Shabbos. Everybody around you gave, I don't know, Mishnah Monos on, on, on Purim, and they all fasted on Yom Kippur, and they came to Shul, and they had a rudimentary ability. They could read a Siddur, etc. They just had no textual knowledge of, of uh, a Shulchan Aruch, of Halacha, of a Rambam. So everybody did, and therefore you did, that the practice was entire but it was not backed up by knowledge. And so you, you get these stories in the 1770s. You don't find these stories about shepherds in the 1870s or the 1570s because of the context. So you've got to go back home now and reread all these stories. Are they all true? Well, obviously not. <laughs> uh, but you can feel history through them. And the Baal Shem Tov, between the 1730s and his death in 1760, he amassed uh, as many as 10,000 followers. He revolutionized the demoralized, persecuted Jews of Eastern Europe. Doesn't sound that radical. Sounds like almost a, a sweet movement. So I haven't emphasized it enough, but there are three radical parts the greatest was that they totally undermined the value of Torah learning. Not just that they didn't emphasize it, they deliberately de-emphasized it. Just to remind ourselves for one moment, Torah learning is the equivalent to all the other 612 commandments, halachically, not just, you know, when featuring in some emotional speech at a kolal fundraising dinner, <laughs> right? Which means you've now taken the most important mitzvah in existence by far and almost removed it from your vocabulary. And that type of thing could get you excommunicated. Oh, it did. Right. So, you know, the idea of asking who was right, it, it's the wrong question, because the people giving over this philosophy said, we have no choice. We go radical or we lose them, which is one heck of a responsibility and controversial. It would make a very popular mindset. And, and it would also raise the hackles of anybody in the Torah world. Mm. De-emphasizing the study of Torah, don't worry, prayer is good enough. But what they're saying is, if I don't emphasize that, I'll lose them because they don't have Torah study and they can't access it. So now what? But it's a very, very radical idea. And that is Hasidus at its core. Not quite what Chassidus is 250 years later, no, because no. circumstances have changed. Definitely ruffling right? feathers today, Rabbi Hirsch. <laughs> uh, there are two other strands, uh, both of which brought trouble. They emphasized the importance and value of the tzaddik, of miracles. You know, some are accurate, some are legendary, some are untrue. And the central figure of the Rebbe. Not because he's the son of the previous Rebbe, because Hasidic dynasties would not start until the 19th century, but because of the force of his personality. Very different 
to the authority of the rabbi of the town or the head of the Bezdin. It's not knowledge that gives him his standing, but charisma, reputation, and bringing Kabbalah into practical life in the wording of tefillah, the adding of introductory prayers, uh, performance of certain actions. So you're saying all these, the Yehirotsons that are in the Nusch of Hasidish Sidurim until today, that was almost to get the the simple and the peasants to be more into the mitzvah. That was all it was about. Well, there is also at the higher echelons, which we'll get to in a moment, the idea that they are connecting through these ideas of Kabbalah to areas of the performance of mitzvahs in a highly spiritualized manner akin to you know the Ari and the Kabbalists of Tzvas in the in the 16th century that's mm-hmm. the five percent at the very top but not for the for the masses yes it was to bring them in draw them in and as did the stories you know connected to the centrality of of the Rebbe people were sick and the Rebbe prayed for them and they were healed. They were poor and, you know, they were able to help them. Obviously, no one believed it was consistent and constant, but this happening is new. Uh, Anti-Semitic landlords who have a change of heart and they don't expel Yankala, who's behind with his rent. Um, court cases which are overturned, even though the judge is a Sene Yisrael, right? He hates Jews. Uh, Non-Jews who are awed by the presence of holy men. And the Torah leaders at the time, prior to Hasidus or during Hasidus, but who weren't part of this movement, were disconnected from the masses. They were aloof. There was very little common ground or conversation. And therefore, these rebus who've arrived on the scene and the stories make a bold statement. It says, you know, you rabbis are out of touch. And the complaint isn't untrue. It's revolutionary. But when you have a group who are de-emphasizing the role of terror study, over-emphasizing the role of the Rebbe and his abilities, it brings uh, pseudo-messianic fears to the fore. Not surprising that they react the way they did. Now, obviously... To believe that, you know, the Rebbe waved their handkerchief and the waters parted or that they got into their horse and carriage and it took them from one end of the Ukraine to the other, you know, in a moment, uh, you know, greater miracles than the sages of the Talmud. That's uh, very simplistic. It's, it's almost childish way of approaching reality, although those stories were told over as well. So all goes into the mix. But if that wasn't enough, there is the third element. It would be a mistake to see the leaders of Hasidus as being simply itinerant preachers going from town to town, teaching the value of good. Most of the Hasidic leadership, these 5%, were from elite Torah backgrounds, able to challenge the status quo, and they are looking to take over leadership positions in the Orthodox Eastern European world. And presumably both levels. I mean, both groups were taught and inspired by the Baal Shem Tov. So both groups were indeed taught by the Baal Shem Tov, but the elite are looking to take over Rabbonus positions within the rabbinate. And beyond that, at the pinnacle of the differences of the Machlekes between the two groups is actually a Kabbalistic struggle in an area of 
pure intellectual study, which in philosophical terms is referred to as immanence versus transcendence. It's two sides of an unknowable and unresolvable conundrum. In the same way as, as the Rumbum talks about free will and foreknowledge as being inherently contradictory, but both have to exist for our lives to exist to have meaning, so too these two. Because one means that God is within um, the totality of every atom of all of existence. That's imminence. And it's true. The other means that God contracted himself outside of this world, symptom, in order for us to be able to exist with independent choice. This is transcendence. It's also true. It's great. They're both true. Unfortunately, <laughs> we can't understand how they can both be true at the same time, but they are. Now, Hasidim emphasized the concept of Ein Oid Milvadoi, the totality of Hashem's presence in the world, whereas the classical approach was Simtsum. You have an essay of Rabdesla where he talks about both sides and concludes, I mean, he obviously concludes that both are right, but he says that, you know, they're both valid. However, uh, the direction taken is dependent on which of these viewpoints you espouse. Yes, it's great that both are true, but in your approach to Hashem and to mitzvahs, you have to adopt the one or the other, which means that the differences between Hasidus and the establishment of Torah leaders is expressed in action, in approach, in leadership, and there are strong differences, both practically for the masses and also the heights of metaphysical Judaism, you know. Wow, that's quite the intellectual exercise today, Rabbi Hirsch. The Hasidic leaders must have been, they must have sounded a lot like Shabzai Tzvi to the untrained ear. Just the whole messianic root and the, so, the stories. Right, so based on what we've said, you can understand how excommunication is on the cards. Right. This, this steps very easily into, into heresy. Interestingly, the, the sort of the two levels of Hasidus can be split into two geographical locations, Lithuania and Ukraine. Because at the time, there's no, no Hasidus in, in Hungary, there's very little in Poland. It was these two places. So in the Ukraine, you're basically preaching to the masses. And in Lithuania, you're dealing with the elite. So that when Hasidus changes the version, the Nusach of Tefillah, no one notices in the Ukraine. I mean, not really. Whereas in Lithuania, this is an attack on accepted religious and halachic practice. Did the Baal Shem Tov ever go to Lithuania? Was he ever there? We only know of one visit, and it actually comes about through two non-Jews. There are one of the princes, well-known Prince Radzivil, has a couple of his landowners who built a house or a building in Slutsk, and they invited the Balshemtov to come and give them a blessing. Now, what happens when he gets there? So obviously this is going to split along classical lines of history. You know, the Misnagdim say that they forcibly ejected the Bolshemtov from the city. <laughs> and the Hasidim are going to say that Lithuanian Jews from miles around traveled to come and hear the Bolshemtov speak. Okay, <laughs> you're not going to resolve that one. Uh, but during the Bolshemtov's lifetime, there is no organized groups of Hasidim in Lithuania. There are leaders, uh, Talmudim of his, like Menachmendel of Vitebsk, Pinchas of Koretz, who was originally from Shklov, which is uh, in the heartland, it's the heart of Jewish aristocracy there, 
Eventually, obviously, there'll be eruption uh, on with the Balatanya, but he doesn't appear on the scene till about 1781. So who actually brought Hasidus to Lithuania? Well, it's both who and when. The when is after, it's probably a decade after the Balshemtov dies in about 1770, and the who is Baron of Karlin. Mm. And Karlin becomes the center of Hasidus in Lithuania. And there are then Karlin Hasidim in Vilna and other Lithuanian towns. Interestingly, as an aside, the Balshemtov's son, Reb Tzvi, lived in Pinsk, which is just next to Karlin, and he's buried in the old cemetery there, but he don't plays... I, don't think I've heard of him. No, he plays no part in the movement whatsoever. He's not uh, referred to by either side, really. So um, that he didn't have a successor. Right, so this goes to the heart of some of what we're dealing with with 1772. Now... Eventually, as a result of all that we've spoken about, the leaders of Lithuanian Jewry in particular realize that what they are confronted with is not just a series of isolated incidents, but a large-scale populist movement. So in 1772, they proclaim a cherum, a ban against Hasidus on the authority of the Vilna Gorn. And in every Beis Medrash and shul in Vilna, this is read out. The shuls of the Hasidim are forcibly closed down. Their writings would eventually be burnt. And the forming of any new Hasidic groups is made illegal. And each side is now waging a war. So, you know, if you're the establishment, you see a new movement, a radical movement. It's promoting a messianic type of figure almost, making ideological changes, attacking terror leadership, uh, and it's, you know, 100 years after Shabtai Tzvi, what do you do? Well, what what you have to do, you, you, you haven't got a choice in the matter. And equally, if you're the other side, you see the masses falling away, you see poverty, you see a lack of hope, you see that they have no connection to Judaism, so what do you do? Well, what do you have to do? And which side is right? Okay. So in hindsight, it's easy to pick up the pieces. Couldn't some of the edges be a bit less sharp? It sounds very brutal, almost. Maybe, but the essence was going to be there. So, you know, the, the, the unfolding of events is almost inevitable, and both sides are aware of it. Uh, we are, however, left with one very obvious question, which we've sort of started with. If there's a ban and they're in charge, how come it failed? How come Hasidus flourished? There is a more subtle question to add to that, and that is why the Mezrich Ramagid was chosen to lead after the Balshemtov. He came to things quite late, and he wasn't accepted by those who were closest to the Balshemtov. It's very probable that not many people saw him as the leader immediately after the Besh dies in 1760, perhaps not until 1766, uh, Yosef of Polnoy, uh, Pinchas of Koretz, explicitly did not accept him as their leader and some of the others by implication. Uh, they didn't join his circle, so to speak. So how did Hasidus survive? And what else happened in 1772, which affected the Jewish world? 
So I guess you're leaving us on that cliffhanger for next week. I am indeed. Um, are you also going to discuss next week what was the what was the pivotal turning point? Because it sounds like Hasidah started as an answer to the peasants to give them some sort of connection to Yiddishkeit. And when it became, when they were pushing it to more mainstream, and in the other way as well, from the Lithuanian standpoint, it sounded like an answer to a legitimate issue. But why did they perceive that as a threat to, what was that pivotal well, turning that, point? One of the main turning points would be the fact that there was no real middle class in Eastern Europe for almost another century. And therefore, the only two people you are talking to are scholars or it's a wrong word to use, peasants. You're not talking about people who are living in a real community and building a community. As I mentioned, the numbers, the percentages, mid-1800s onwards, things will change uh, partly because of that. Um, the economic circumstances change and Hasidus spreads, which we will also get to next week. Because it almost could have remained polarised. It could have remained something that, you know, yes. the less fortunate... Yep. Yep. Okay, so we're looking forward for next week. Just a reminder to email podcast at jlead.org.uk to secure your spot in this exclusive tour. And as always, make sure to follow on whatever streaming platform you are following on. You do not want to miss the second part of this series, at least. <laughs> and looking forward to next week. Thank you, Robert Hirsch. Mm-hmm.